Well, we're continuing our series called The Final Hours, and today we want to talk about the passion of Christ. Uh, I shared this earlier with you um, uh, since it happened, but in October of this past year, uh, Pastor Ben and myself, uh, we attended a silent prayer retreat, which is put on for the pastors in our district. I know that Pastor Mike has attended the same one uh, on a number of occasions, and at this particular one, one of the exercises, and I know it's hard for you to imagine me at a two-day silent prayer retreat. I, I know that that's difficult. Um, if you think it's difficult for you to imagine, just put yourself in my shoes. Um, and I may not be saying anything, but inside there's a whole lot happening. Um, but during one of the particular uh, exercises, Pete Fisher, our, our retreat director, um, shared with us uh, what we were going to be doing. And he said, uh, I, I've given you an envelope. And everybody had this envelope um, that was sealed. And there were instructions on the outside of the envelope. And the envelope simply said that you need to get alone be alone alone and make sure that you have you got you got your cup of coffee make sure you've used the bathroom make sure that you are you've got 30 minutes and you need to be prepared and ready for this 30 minutes it needs to be uninterrupted and and when you get ready you're going to open this envelope and you're going to do the exercise that it instructs you to do <clears throat> And the retreat center uh, there at Spencer Lake in Wapaka, Wisconsin, overlooks Spencer Lake. And I used to spend a lot of time there as a kid. And my favorite place to be uh, if, when you're inside is in the, the lower level of the uh, dining hall facility because there are big windows, floor to ceiling, looks out over the lake. It's really awesome. You can really meditate there. And uh, it's a big room, and they've got nice chairs and, and a place to write. So I was real comfortable. I'm I'm the only one in the room, and it's a room of this size or bigger. I'm the only one there. I've got 30 minutes. <clears throat> I open up the envelope, and the envelope simply says this. You are going to die in 30 minutes. How will you spend that 30 minutes? I bawled. Not for 30 minutes. I wept for long over an hour. In fact, I was there so long, other people started to come in and, and they, they knew what I knew, that this was a great place and they had spent their half an hour, but I wasn't done yet. And I, had, I literally had to go get boxes of Kleenex because I just, I wept and I, and I was just, I was overwhelmed by the thought. And yes, for me, I, maybe it was a little bit more emotional because earlier that year, uh, I, I had a, a, an experience where, where I fell on the ground dead and only by the grace of God am I here to tell you about the, that anything today. So maybe it was a little bit emotional because of that, but I literally, I, I sat there and I wept. Today, what I want to do is I want to pick up the narrative for, from where Pastor Mike uh, preached last week, and I want to continue on with that narrative, and I want to focus today on four of the things <clears throat> that Jesus said in the final hours 
of his life. Because I learned in that moment that if I know that I have a certain amount of time left, there are certain things that I'm going to want to say and certain things that I'm going to want to do. We're going to look at what's called the passion of Jesus. It's from the Latin word passionem, and it means suffering or enduring. The first thing that I want to look at that Jesus said is this, not my will. Look at Luke chapter 22 there on the screen. We're going to begin at verse 41. It says, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. Now, Remember that, that, that just moments before, okay, uh, Jesus has, uh, he just washed the disciples' feet where Mike preached last week, and, and I listened to it this week, and man, it was awesome. Thank you, Mike, for sharing the word uh, with us last week, and, and it says that he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So immediately after that Passover meal where Jesus took the towel and put it around his waist... And he washed the feet of his disciples. Immediately after that, Jesus has taken them to this place called uh, Gethsemane. And, and Gethsemane, the traditional location, uh, is an olive grove. In fact, the word Gethsemane means oil press. And Gethsemane is, is located on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, right near Jerusalem, near the edge of the Kidron Valley. And this was a place that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would frequent in order to get alone and pray. And we know that it had to be frequent because Judas knew where to take the authorities to arrest Jesus. They knew where he would be. So Jesus brings the 11, okay, obviously minus Judas. He brings them there to the garden and he drops eight of them off. And then Jesus goes deeper into the garden with Peter, James, and John. And then he says to Peter, James, and John, you wait here, you pray, I'm going to go in a little bit further. And so Jesus there begins to pray. And he knows what's coming. He knows the amount of time that he has left. He knows that he's about ready to die. And the Bible says that he becomes overwhelmed with sorrow. You think, why would God be overwhelmed with sorrow? Because you see, Jesus was fully God and fully man. So Jesus laid aside his deity. He laid aside the benefits and the power of being God to live life as a man. And so he was suffering as a man would suffer. And literally he was overwhelmed with sorrow. And as he prays, the Bible says something that I've never seen before. That he sweat literally drops of blood. Medically, this is called hematidrosis. 
and it's associated with incredible amounts of psychological stress and anxiety. And what it does is it releases a chemical within the body that breaks down the little tiny blood vessels near the surface of the skin and in the sweat glands. And it will appear that a person is literally sweating blood. And this particular uh, 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 event, this, this physiological event, set it up so that as Jesus moved into uh, the crucifixion, that, that it was extremely painful because literally uh, the skin becomes fragile. It becomes very easy for the skin to break. And so we know what was ahead of Jesus, the flogging by the Romans. His skin would be incredibly sensitive. As Jesus prays in the garden, the pressure of his impending crucifixion was so great. The stress uh, literally was so awful that those small little blood vessels in his skin began to burst, began to pour out as like sweat, but yet having the color of his blood mixed with his blood. You see, Jesus did not want to die. In fact, he asked God, if it were possible that he not have to die, and yet under the resp- his response, under all of this pressure, was God, not my will but yours be done. You and I go through pressure. Oh, not enough probably to uh, cause us to sweat drops of blood, but we know what pressure is, right? We know what anxiety is. Anxiety is so prevalent in our culture today that, that even, even our kids often are taking medications for anxiety. We know what that is. But how do we respond when we suffer anxiety? Do we say, not my will, but yours be done? Or do we say, you know what, hey, I need some relief here. And I'm gonna, I'll, I'll get it any way that I can get it. Jesus, in that moment, his response was, not my will. The second thing that I want us to look at today is not a phrase that Jesus spoke, but it's a phrase that he didn't speak. How many of you know that it's sometimes more powerful in what we don't say than what we do say? As a sanguine, it's tough for me to live this. But that is the reality. Sometimes it's not what you say. It's what you don't say that makes the difference. We know that after Jesus' arrest that night in the garden, he faced six separate trials. Now, I have never, I've never been charged and, and never had to stand trial before, so I can't really understand this. I've been with people while they've gone through things like that or been in, in, in court hearings, but I've never had to endure it myself. Jesus met, first of all, with Ananias, the former high priest, and then he met with Caiaphas, the current high priest, and then he met before the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, then he met before Pilate, then he met before Herod, and finally went back to Pilate again, seven different mini-trials that Jesus went through. Look at Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 12. It says, When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? 
But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. How do you respond when someone lies about you? How do you respond? We want to defend ourselves, don't we? We want to set the record straight. You have no idea what you're talking about. You are speaking lies. We, we, just there's a righteous indignation that rise up against, rises up inside of us and just wants to speak the truth. Is that true for anybody else? We don't like it when people are telling falsehoods about us, especially if they were doing it in a court of law. We would want to tell the truth. What does it say about Jesus? It says false witnesses. They accused him. that. In fact, they said he, he said he was going to destroy the temple in three days. Jesus wasn't talking about the, the, the Jewish temple. He was talking about himself. Because he said in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking. They were completely out of context. Wouldn't it have been easy for Jesus to say, hey dummies... I wasn't talking, of, if you had listened to me, I was really referring to myself. Not about, anybody knows that you can't build Solomon's temple in three days. We would want to set the record straight. He was asked directly if he was the Christ, the Son of God. And he, he answered, yes, and they condemned him for it. They said that he spoke blasphemy. Can you imagine how we would feel if we were giving uh, the, an answer? Hey, who are you? And you say, hey, my name, you wouldn't say this, my name's Kevin. Oh, that's blasphemy. We, we, would, just, we would be crazy with that. We couldn't, we couldn't hardly handle it. But Jesus is condemned to die by religious leaders who don't have the power to even act on their own decision. And so he's sent before Pilate, who's the governor of Judea, who has the power to either release Jesus or to convict him. And Pilate asked Jesus if he is indeed the king of the Jews. Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. The chief priests and, they, and, and, and the, the, uh, the others accused Jesus of many different things. But during that trial, Jesus never defends himself. Not a single accusation does Jesus address. Then he sent before Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. But again, Jesus gives no answers. Herod sends him back to Pilate for more questioning. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 1, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus, this is part of the sixth and final trial, and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. There's so much here for us to look at. Jesus says nothing. Look at what he's experiencing. What would you say if someone came up to you and slapped you in the face and mocked you, spit on you? Guys, if you've got a beard, they grab that beard and pull the chunk of that hair out. I think we would say something, wouldn't we? But it says he said nothing. Jesus was flogged. The Romans 
would flog people and they would give them 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails. The reason they would give 39 lashes is because they believed that 40 was considered capital punishment. And they weren't trying to kill you with those 39 lashes, so they would stop one short of that. It would be a piece of braided leather, the cat of nine tails. It would have sharp pieces of bone, but also interestingly, they were interwoven into the leather. There were metal ball bearings or round round chunks of metal that were there because when those pieces would hit the flesh, they would bruise the flesh, allowing it to tear more easily and be more painful. The executioners would rip the embedded bone that was in that whip through the flesh with incredible precision. They would take that whip and they would wrap it around from the back side and it would come and dig into the front side and become embedded. And then with great force, they would pull it so that it would rip the skin and begin to open the flesh. A third century historian named Eusebius, he describes flogging this way, that the sufferer's veins were laid bare, and very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. That's what Jesus went through. And yet it says he did not defend himself. In John chapter 19, verse 10, Pilate said to him, don't you realize, don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Pilate was looking for a way to let Jesus go free. He was waiting for Jesus to refute the accusations so he could let him go free. And Jesus knew that if he did, he would go free and he wouldn't go to the cross. You and I would say, mission accomplished. I avoided the cross. Jesus knew that was where he was to go. Still, he said nothing. Thirdly, he says, forgive them. I want you to think of this. He says, forgive them. Luke chapter 23, beginning of verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were led out with him, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The true gift of Roman society was not their creativity, it was not their original ideas, it was the ability for them to learn things from other cultures that they conquered, perfect them, and then implement them into their cultural system. Crucifixion was one of those things. You see, crucifixion had been around, it was used by Uh, the Persians, literally for hundreds of years before we get to the story of Jesus' crucifixion. 
Journalist Jim Bishop writes that the original inventors of this horrible form of execution designed it in a way to inflict the, the maximum amount of pain before a, on a victim before they would die. Bishop says they tried death by spear, by boiling in oil, impalement, stoning, strangulation, drowning, burning, and all were found to be too quick. They didn't want to just kill you. They wanted it to take a long time. They wanted a means of punishing criminals publicly and slowly, so they devised the cross. It was, it was almost ideal because in its original form, it was slow as it was painful. And the condemned person at the same time was placed in clear view of everyone so that it would have a greater societal impact. The Romans, in their search for a better, more effective means of execution, they adopted the cross as a means of deterring crime, and they had great confidence in their methods. In time, they, they literally brought it to an exact science with a set of rules that would be followed the late biblical scholar Merrill F. Unger says of crucifixion that there are instances on record that people who are crucified have survived on the cross up to nine full days. Historian, Jewish historian Connor says crucifixion is the most terrible and cruel death man has ever devised. Cicero himself, a Roman citizen, was well acquainted with crucifixion and he says it's the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. Crucifixion, we, we look at it and we think it's, it's the act of, of just being put on the cross that kills the person. But that's not what kills the person. It's literally death by suffocation and asphyxiation. You see, when someone is put on the cross, there are nails that go in the wrists to hold them on the crossbar. There are nails that go through the feet. And, and generally, the legs are bent to a, a certain amount of degrees. And they are left there on the cross. But in order for them to breathe, in order for them to, to be able to take that breath, they must push down on their feet in order to get up, to be able to get a breath that comes in, and then they relax back down as they exhale. That's one breath. In order for them to take another, they must push up again on their feet in order to fill their lungs with air, and then as they sink back down, exhale, that's two. Jesus was on the cross for six hours. And his response to hanging on that cross was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We look at it, the Romans had perfected it. Oh, they knew what they were doing. The Jews wanted it. 
They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus in his compassion, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Crucifying the Son of God. Number four, he said it is finished. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished. And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There's a number of different opinions about these verses. Some people believe that the Romans had mercy and they wanted to give that mixture to Jesus because it would dull the pain. And and there's nothing historically that would lead us to believe that the, the Romans wanted to dull anyone's pain. They had perfected crucifixion. It was designed to last as long as possible, to be as painful as possible. But as we look historically at Roman culture, which these Roman soldiers would still have been living in, even though they were in a foreign land, they would have brought their own culture there with them. We have to ask ourselves the question, where did the sponge come from? What is that all about? Why would there just be vinegar just laying around near the crucifixion? What is that all about? That makes no sense to us in our culture. Archaeologist Stephen Nash wrote an article on the hygiene practices of Romans. The mention of a sponge and a hyssop stalk and the presence of wine vinegar almost, is almost identical to the hygiene practices of Romans to clean themselves after they've gone to the bathroom. Are you with me? This is hard to say. But in that moment as Jesus hung on the cross, as he cried out, I'm thirsty. And somebody had the bright idea, well, we'll give him something to drink. To take that that sponge on that stick, the equivalent of a toilet brush in our community, in our culture, in our life, only even more personal than that. To stick it in that vinegar and raise it to Jesus' lips. The one who spoke in creation was formed. The one who spoke us into being in the form of Adam. And how did Jesus respond? He didn't Cry out, you bunch of ingrates. He said, it is finished. Those words, it is finished. The word in the Greek is tetelestai, and it means to bring to a close, to end, to perform the last act, which completes the promise, and it also means to pay. It's a terminating phrase. It indicates absolute finish, but it's not a whimper. 
It's not a, a wail of a helpless martyr. It's not an exasperated gasp of a worn out life. It's not a word of depression or defeat or despair. It's not words of relief that says, oh, I'm glad that this is over. It's a declaration of victory. It's triumph, claiming victory by a conqueror. You see, the whole point of Jesus starting this life of humanity was to finish God's plan of salvation. And he said, it is finished. It's done. I've completed it. I've won the victory. And it also means, in a commercial sense, it's used to say that you finished paying for something. You see, when someone would purchase something that required multiple payments, upon making that last installment, they would cry out, Tetelestai, which means paid in full. When Jesus said, it is finished, they understood something was happening here. Something has come to completion. Something has been paid for in full. His statement of it is finished refers to that final payment which has been made for the forgiveness of the sins of all mankind. It's written in the perfect tense which means it's been completed but it's once for all and it does not need to be repeated. Jesus suffered the ultimate humiliation, not only of the cross, but the way that they treated him on the cross. And yet he said, it is finished. He proclaimed victory. Thank you, Lord. Remember the silent prayer retreat that I mentioned. You have 30 minutes to live. How would you spend the time? I spent my time writing furiously. Furiously, I, in fact, I pulled out that envelope this week and looked at it. I didn't take out and look at everything that I wrote, but I addressed each of my family members. I addressed my wife. I addressed my kids. And I spoke to them the things that I would want to say if I only had 30 minutes to live, the things that I would want to hear them say, have them hear me say from my heart to them. So imagine Jesus knowing that he only has a little time left. The words that he spoke carry so much weight for you and I today. And then in light of his suffering, they did not dissuade him Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. It says, Just as there were many who were appalled by him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Jesus suffered. And in the midst of that suffering, he said, Not my will but yours be done as he sweat drops of blood. As he received the 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails, as they put the crown of thorns on his head, he spoke not a word in his own defense. And as he was crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. 
And as they raise that sponge and that stick to his face with the vinegar, he said, it is finished. I've won the victory. It's been paid for, paid in full. Father, I thank you. I thank you today for what Jesus did for us. In those final hours, those final moments that Jesus was on this earth, he completed your plan of salvation. I'm reminded that in Revelation, he's referred to as the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. He completed your plan to bring us forgiveness. Father, I pray today for the one who's here today that's been searching, searching for a meaningful relationship with God, searching for answers, wondering is there anyone in this life that will love me the way I crave to be loved. And today I pray that through looking at your word, they will understand that God loved them so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. Father, we say thank you. We say thank you that even today that we can respond to this love, that even today we can say, God, thank you for sending your son Jesus. Thank you that he shed blood on the cross for my sin, not for his own, but for mine, that I might be forgiven, that my sins would be washed away. Father, I'm so glad that even today, even today, Jesus looks back and he would be willing to do it all again, but thank you, God, that it's been done once for all.